Welcome to When One Thing Leads to Another, a podcast that takes you freewheeling down the great internet rabbit hole of trivia. Each week, we pick a starting point, and then who knows where all the twists, turns and tangents will take us. But we'll be sure to discover a treasure trove of frivolous facts that will be as fascinating as they are useless. When One Thing Leads to Another is produced and presented by us, Helen and Bill Rich. Our theme music is by Justin Mitchell. This is episode 11, Ring My Bell. Now, last weekend, we stayed with our friends Ben and Laura in Loughborough, didn't we? We did. And while we were there, in between our heroic pub crawl, we visited the Carillon Tower. We did. We did. It's a fine tower. In Queen's Park. In Queen's Park, exactly right. And I can tell you that it was built in 1923 as a World War I memorial. Mm -hmm. And it's famous for housing 47 bells. That's a lot of bells. Which are played not by bell ringers Mm. or campanologists as they are called, but by an organist because the bells are rather ingeniously linked to an organ. Oh, okay. And that's what a carillon is apparently. A bell that's linked to an organ. It has to be a minimum of 23 bells linked to an organ. And our friend Ben was telling us the story of the time when the heavy metal band ACDC wanted to record the sound of the bells as an intro to their song, Hell's Bells. But they couldn't get a decent recording, so they actually commissioned John Taylor's foundry in town to make one. They'd made the bells in the tower, um, which they then duly did. And it's that very bell that you hear at the beginning of the song, Hell's Bells. And I was reading about the great fun ACDC had taking the damn bell on tour because it weighs over a tonne and uh, the size and the weight of the thing caused them a few problems. Not least when it fell from its suspension and created a bell-sized hole in the stage. Oh! Uh, fortunately it was only suspended a couple of feet up so no one was injured which is, uh, which is just as well. And I was doing a bit of research on the song Hell's Bells by ACDC. Mm-hmm. Right, now bear with me. In 1989 the US Army invaded Panama in Central America in order to detain General Noriega, who was the leader of the country. You remember it, right? Uh, Yes, I remember Noriega. I remember the name. You remember the name Noriega? I was too busy listening to Kylie, I think, to know too many details about the invasion anyway. Uh, Yeah, well, fair enough. Well, the US government wanted to get him on charges of drug trafficking, racketeering and money laundering, so sent the army to apprehend him. But he took refuge in the Vatican Embassy where the US Army were forbidden to go through international law, of course. So what the army did was they blared loud rock music, including ACDC's Hell's Bells, continuously and relentlessly in the direction of the embassy for two days straight, finally forcing Noriega to surrender. Oh, that's interesting. Is that possibly a well-known torture tactic it is it's, it's actually it's actually banned by the united nations what because it's just too barbaric playing heavy metal well not necessarily heavy metal but if the purpose of loud music is to deprive someone of sleep or if you're trying to break them down then, yeah. it, then it is torture and therefore yeah. under united nations law it is not permitted yes yeah, I, so I don't think it would bother me i think you know, as torture goes, I'd rather have ACDC played than be waterboarded, for example. I think it all depends on the on what they're playing. So, for example, for you, if they played just wall-to-wall Oasis loudly... <laughs> That's it. I'd, I'd, I'd crack. I'd sing like a bird. You would, you would surrender very <laughs> swiftly, would you not? You'd be going the white flag. All right, yeah. get me out of here. Yeah, I'll tell you anything. 
Interestingly, researchers at the University of South Australia have found that playing ACDC's song Thunderstruck, Thunderstruck! Yeah. during chemotherapy treatment improves the efficiency of the drug. What? Yeah, they chose this ACDC track because vibrations from the song cause silicon microparticles carrying the chemo drug inside a vacuum to bounce. This results in a polymer coating that prevents the drug from escaping while being administered, thus improving delivery to cancer cells. Isn't that incredible? That is unbelievable. I know, yeah. And another little interesting nugget I found um, on the subject of ACDC. I I've always assumed they were named after the electricity abbreviation, yeah, al what... alternating current and direct current. So it's not that? No, apparently it was inspired by um, Angus and Malcolm Young, obviously from the band. Their sister Margaret spotted the initials on a sewing machine. And it was sister Margaret who also suggested Angus wear his famous school uniform. So, grief. So, so sister Margaret, I'm making her sound a bit like a nun, um, <laughs> but their sister Margaret, she is quite the inspiration for ACDC. Good old Maggie. Yeah. Okay, going back to the bell that the John Taylor Foundry cast for ACDC, yeah. um, the company also has a rich history of casting a number of high-profile bells oh. around the world, okay. including the Great George Bell in Liverpool Cathedral, right? the bell in the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. Are you going to say Big Ben? No, hold on there. Go on. Also the bell in City Hall in Cape Town, okay. South Africa. Um, but the most famous bell... Right, finally. Big... No, no, not Big Ben. Oh. But it did cast Great Paul. Do you know what Great Paul is? He... Uh, well, it's going to be the bell in St Paul's Cathedral, I would imagine. It is the bell in St Paul's Cathedral, which is the biggest church bell in Britain. Okay. Um, and it would be the biggest bell overall, but the 2012 Olympic bell I'm reading here is bigger and is, in fact, the largest harmonically tuned bell in the world. Mm. So now you know, and if you want to go and see it, if bells are your thing, you can go and see it uh, as it hangs in the Olympic Park in Stratford. Oh. Well, I can't believe we've gone through that whole segment on bells and Big Ben didn't feature. Yeah, I don't know who made Big Ben, the bell. Well, I'm going to have a little look now. Okay. Here we go, Big Ben, the main bell. Yeah. Um, officially known as the Great Bell, but better known as Big Ben. Of course. Um, it's the largest bell in the tower of... Um, Westminster you know, Tower. Westminster Tower, thank you. It, it sounds an E natural. Okay. Um, and the original bell was a 16-tonne hour bell. That makes the ACDC bell look Mickey Mouse. Yeah. Uh, cast on the 6th of August 1856 in Stockton-on-Tees by John Warner and Sons. Oh, OK. So there you go. That's who made the great bell Big Ben. Well, thanks very much for that. You're very welcome. But leaving aside Big Ben for the moment and returning to the John Taylor Foundry, they also made the bells that ring out on Christmas Day mm. in the Pogues song Fairy Tale of New York because they cast the bells hanging in St Thomas's Church on Fifth Avenue, which are the bells that are mentioned in that song. Okay. So I've done a little bit of research on Fairy Tale of New York. Oh, right. Okay, good. Yeah. One of the, um, certainly in my top three probably everybody's top three Christmas songs. Absolutely. 
Did you know that it was, of course, Shane McGowan and banjo player Jem Finer who wrote the song? Right. After being supposedly challenged to write a non-slushy Christmas song by Elvis Costello as a bet. Oh, right, OK. And they wrote it with the intention of bass player Kate O'Riordan to sing the female part, but she left the band before recording. Oh, OK. And Steve Lillywhite, who produced the song, got his then-wife, Kirsty McColl, to sing a scratch vocal. And so good was her singing that it remained. Ah, OK. And do you remember the video? I do remember bits. Yeah, I think yeah, they shot it in white. New York. Yeah, yeah black yeah, yeah. and white um, video. It features the NYPD pipe band. Right. Um, you know, obviously they sing, don't they? And the boys and of the, the NYPD choir still singing Galway Bay. Well, the NYPD didn't have a choir. <laughs> oh, right. Oh, okay. So they, um, but they did have a pipe band. Right. Um, but the pipe band didn't know the tune Galway Bay. Right. So in the video, they're actually playing the Mickey Mouse Club March, <laughs> weirdly. Right. And the video is slowed down, so it looks like they're really playing along to Galway Bay. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Oh, I'll have to, I'll have to rewatch the video. Yeah, it's great. Um, I also read that the members of the NYPD pipe band were more drunk than the Pogues for the video shoot. Wow. Which, yeah, strikes me as being quite the uh, remarkable feat. That's quite an achievement, I would have thought. Uh, yeah. And you might remember in the video Shane McGowan plays the piano. Right, OK, yes, yes, yes. But he doesn't actually play the piano. The close-up of the fingers playing the keys is actually James Fernley, the, the Pogues piano player. Right, OK. And he had to wear McGowan's rings for the shots. <laughs> OK. Oh, that's a good cheat. I like it. Yeah. And finally, another fascinating yet entirely frivolous fact for you. Oh, yeah. The strings were arranged by a musician called Fiacra Trench. Yeah. Yeah. Um, who, Fiacra Trench, in a lovely tangent, taught Linda McCartney to play the piano. Oh, that is absolute gold. Yeah. Well, I enjoyed that little tangent. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. I'm feeling all warm and Christmassy, but even <laughs> though it's 30 degrees outside. <laughs> but I would like to take things back to the fact that the US Army blared out ACDC to weaken the resolve of General Noriega, oh, as we have previously yes. Discussed yeah. while he was holed up in the Vatican mm. City Embassy. Um, and I found other songs that were used during that time where they were trying to flush him out. Okay. Um, and uh, you might want to call it the Noriega playlist. <laughs> and they played the following songs apparently to flush him out. One was Martha Reeves and the Vandellas, Nowhere to Run. Oh, really? Yeah. That's ridiculous. I know, I know. Oh. Van Halen, Panama. Okay. And The Clash, I Fought the Law. I can't believe they actually thought about the <laughs> sentiment of the songs yeah. and thought he's going to sit, be sitting in there thinking, oh, well, because Martha, <laughs> Martha says there's nowhere to run, I'm going to hold my hands up and come out. I'm going to give myself up, yeah. Um, but going back to the clash, I fought the law. I, was, mm. uh, I did a little bit of Googling on that, and mm. I didn't know that that song was actually written by a guy called Sonny Curtis. Do you know who Sonny Curtis was? No. He was a member of Buddy Holly's backing band, The Crickets. Oh. Yeah, yeah. And The Crickets actually recorded it shortly after Buddy Holly died. Um, but because... 
they were less successful owing to him being dead. Um, the song got a bit lost until it was picked up and covered by the Bobby Fuller Four mm. in 1965. Right, OK. OK. Um, now, do you know anything about Bobby Fuller? No. That is fair enough. But I was doing a bit of reading about him, and had he lived, um, he died at the age of only 23. There was a good chance he would have had a very successful career, but he actually died shortly after the release of I Fought the Law. Right. And he was found dead in the front seat of his mother's car in a vacant parking lot. And although it was officially ruled a suicide, there's some doubt over that verdict, and a lot of people suspect foul play. Oh dear. But, very interestingly, four years later, Janis Joplin supposedly scored the heroine that eventually killed her mm. from the same parking lot. Oh. Yeah, she died after overdosing on it just yards away in the Landmark Motor Hotel in Los Angeles. Well, there's a, a morbid coincidence. Indeed. Would you like to hear some quick facts about Janis Joplin? I would like nothing more. OK, her penchant for drinking Southern Comfort straight from the bottle on stage earned her one of her famous fur coats. Uh, Southern Comfort bought one for her as a sort of thank you for her inadvertently advertising their product. Swigging straight from the bottle, that's pretty heavy rock and roll. Maybe I should start noisily eating magnums on our podcast and I might get some free ice cream. You <laughs> and... can but hope. <laughs> And apparently Joplin once hit Jim Morrison over the head with a bottle, presumably Southern Comfort, <laughs> after Joplin rejected Morrison's advances. Oh, wow. Yeah. OK. But she did have a fling with Leonard Cohen, apparently in the Chelsea Hotel in New York. Did she, by and, Jove? Yeah, Cohen later recalled, she wasn't looking for me, she was looking for Chris Christopherson. And I wasn't looking for her. I was looking for Bridget Bardot. Charming. <laughs> OK. He told Rolling Stone magazine this. Right. But we fell into each other's arms through some process of elimination. How romantic. <laughs> How romantic. And Cohen wrote about their encounter in his song Chelsea Hotel Number no. 2, for which he went on to regret, as the song contains some pretty explicit details about his and Joplin's dalliance. And he regretted kissing and telling. Oh. I don't know that song. I feel like I need to listen to it. it. Sounds saucy. It is saucy. Yes, there is. I'm thinking of an early verse where. <laughs> oh, I'm really glad that people can't see what you just did. Yeah, talking of the Chelsea Hotel, mm. which is probably New York's most famous hotel, mm. having been a favourite place for long-term stays and a place to hang out for a whole bunch of notable people. Yes, didn't Bob Dylan stay there for a long time? That's absolutely right. Yeah, he wrote a couple of his classic tunes there, apparently. Um, it was also the favoured place of writers like Arthur Miller, Oh. Allen Ginsberg, William S. Burroughs and Jack Kerouac. Oh, right. And a whole bunch of musicians like Jim Morrison, Iggy Pop. Madonna actually lived there uh, in the 80s um, and Tom Waits. And also actors and directors, um, Stanley Kubrick, Dennis Hopper and Uma Thurman. Wow, apparently. quite the celebrity haunt. Quite the celebrity haunt, yes. And I'm reading here that Arthur C. Clarke actually wrote 2001 A Space Odyssey while staying at the Chelsea Hotel. Oh, yeah. wow. Ooh. And the writer Dylan Thomas was staying in room 205 when he fell ill and died a few days later of pneumonia in 1953. Oh. Um, but the Chelsea Hotel is probably most famous for being the place where Nancy Spungen was found dead from a stab wound. She, you will remember she was Sid Vicious 
from oh, the Sex Pistols' girlfriend yeah. at the time. And Sid Vicious was arrested, charged and bailed, but died himself of a heroin overdose before the trial could take place. Oh, that's where they... Uh, yeah, that's where that all happened, yeah. And the NYPD closed the case shortly after his death. And the Chelsea Hotel features in the titles and lyrics of a lot of songs. Here's some examples. Chelsea Girl by Nico, mm. The Chelsea Hotel, Graham Nash, and Chelsea Morning by Joni Mitchell. Oh, yes, I know Chelsea Morning. But rewinding back to one of Chelsea Hotel's regular guests, Arthur Miller, mm. well, I thought I would do a little bit of uh, Googling on him, and I think it's safe to say he was probably as famous for marrying yeah. Marilyn, Marilyn Monroe as he is for being the writer of... The Crucible. ...and Death of Salesman, yeah. Mm. He also actually wrote the script for The Misfits, which oh, starred yes. Marilyn, Marilyn yeah. um, but during production, Miller and Monroe's relationship went south and they broke up. And did you know that Arthur Miller has a famous son-in-law? I mean, he's dead, but his son-in-law still exists. He has a famous son-in-law. Yeah, his daughter, mm. uh, Arthur Miller's daughter, married someone famous. Oh, um, uh, no, I don't know who that is. Try Daniel Day-Lewis. Oh, Daniel Day-Lewis. Oh, that's interesting because... Daniel Day-Lewis's father is a uh, was a famous poet as well, Cecil Day-Lewis, wasn't oh, he? Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, so Daniel Day-Lewis is married to Arthur Miller's daughter. Exactly right, and she is uh, she's called Rebecca, and she is a writer and filmmaker in her own right. Well, I did not know that. Neither did I. And another interesting fact about Arthur Miller, if I may be so bold, is that he was blacklisted from working in the film industry for what were perceived by the Conservative government at the time as communist sympathies. Oh, well, that, that happened to a lot of That's creatives right. in he, the 50s and 60s. That's I mean, right. it happened to um, Peggy Seeger. She wasn't allowed back into the country for such a long time. That's right. This was during the McCarthy era. Yeah. McCarthy feared that communist ideology was becoming popular within the federal government, university and film and the creative arts. Well, and, isn't, uh, isn't, isn't that what um, Arthur Miller based The Crucible on? It's the witch trials. Well, I was Salem just witch trials. coming to that, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I remember studying the crucible for gcse english and i remember that it was oh you were actually paying attention in class for once yeah and it was it, i remember learning that it was based on it was an allegory for the mccarthy witch hunts ah communist I, um yeah oh well well remembered Thank yeah you. yeah and uh, miller was hauled before a government committee called the house un-american activities committee or the HUAC, where he was told to grass up anyone he knew or suspected of having communist sympathies. But he refused and he was found guilty of contempt of Congress and Miller was sentenced to a fine, a prison sentence yeah. and blacklisted yeah. and disallowed a US passport. Yeah. However, in August 1958, his conviction was overturned by the Court of Appeals, but his name remained on the so-called red list, which was created to make it difficult for those on it to work within the industry. Mm. Going back to Leonard Cohen, if I may. Of course. Um, after we discovered his dalliance with Janis Joplin, I did some research and found, much to my surprise, he once appeared in an episode of the American TV series Miami Vice. I can't believe it. Yep. In an episode called French Twist, right. Leonard Cohen, of all people, plays the part of Francois Zolan, a baddie, and claims he took the part to impress his son, who was a big fan of the show. Right. Blimey, that is incongruous, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. However, he later recalled, 
In truth, I had a much bigger part. I went down there and did my first scene and the assistant director rang me up and said, you were really great, truly wonderful. And I said, okay, thanks a lot. And then the casting director from New York called me up and said, you were fantastic, truly wonderful. And I said, you mean I'm fired? And he said, yeah, we're cutting all your other scenes and giving them to another guy. And thus was the end of dear old Leonard's acting career. Ah, oh, poor old Leonard. Thank you for listening to When One Thing Leads to Another, a podcast produced and presented by us, Helen and Bill Rich. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please rate and review us on wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe, and that way you'll never miss an episode. A massive thank you to Justin Mitchell for letting us use his music as our theme song. It's a track called Homo Erectus, taken from his fantastical album called The Garden of Earthly Delights, which is available to buy from bandcamp.com. Thanks also to Acast for hosting us. Join us next week for another episode of When One Thing Leads to Another. Please note that all facts have been found on the internet and therefore we cannot vouch for their veracity.